Hi everyone, welcome to This is Lassonde, a podcast where we bring you stories from a diverse array of creators working to create positive change in the Lassonde community and beyond. So sit back, relax, be inspired, and learn something new with us. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Jan Schwarzschneider, a software engineering professor at the Lassonde School of Engineering. His work focuses on privacy and security in computer systems. We talk about what privacy entails, the struggle of figuring out what constitutes as appropriate privacy measures in today's day and age, as well as the privacy concerns that come with shifting to online learning. Hello, uh, Dr. Schwarzschneider. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you, Connor. Thank you for having me here. Looking forward for a wonderful conversation. Me too. So I kind of want to start at the beginning. How did you know that software engineering was the right path for you? Oh, uh, that's a great question. A uh, long time ago, though, uh, I was uh, kind of remember myself uh, feeling uh, liking being around computers and liking, you know, computer software and uh, using it a long time, playing games, um, as uh, many of the listeners might uh, relate. And at some point, I kind of wanted to, to create games and create those software, and I felt um, I should do something about it. And at the time that I have to choose my major, I was actually trying to weigh the options. And I really liked the appeal of software engineering when it basically, remember the brochure was describing that as a software engineer, you will be responsible for the whole experience. So if, I think the example was the ATM. So it's not just the software, it's the experience of using the ATM. It's uh, how end-to-end operations. And I really like that idea of thinking about it and also being part of it and part of a team. So software engineering felt like uh, a great way of doing that. And uh, yep, uh, the rest is history. So it actually took me from there. Yeah. I feel like you and me are kind of similar, this idea of like loving games and wanting to create that experience. Yeah, I still do. I still do. It's kind of a passion of mine. Uh, games are a great way of you know, communicating ideas, building new worlds, virtual. So I really like that as well and try to incorporate it in my work as well. I think games can be a great medium for exchanging, building new visions and understanding how the world works in a virtual environment and then thinking how we can adopt some of the ideas from there. So yeah, great way of doing that. No, I agree. And it feels like nearly all my friends and computer science, they, they kind of say the same thing, you know, video games, because it starts from there, I guess, for uh, or maybe just for us, but really uh, video games today are, are very, you know, they, they can lure you in and really immerse. That's maybe a better way. Uh, you can immerse yourself in there. And then at some point, at least for me, I realized, okay, uh, I would like to see the behind the scenes. Like, how do I do this? And I want to create new things. So first you kind of try to uh, tweak some things, but ultimately you want to build a game and you look at the game engines and all of that and you're trying to make sure that, and then you realize that you need to know more and then you think, okay, well, may, might as well make a career out of it. And, and you know, things take from there. Obviously, I'm not a game developer, uh, but uh, it's certainly uh, something that I feel uh, helped me uh, kind of understand the world, software engineering and kind of get to it and to know more about it. So, yeah. So you said that, you know, the rest is history. Can you tell us a little bit about that history, about your academic journey? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a long one, actually. So it can take the whole episode here. Uh, so I was privileged uh, and honored to work with some great people around the world. So I, after graduating, um, I have software engineering PhD at, uh, at the University of Sydney in Australia. Uh, I had a, taken up a position at uh, Cambridge, UK, uh, when I worked part of amazing team on building network systems 
And from there, I moved to uh, Princeton, New Jersey, where again, I worked on Internet of Things and worked on privacy issues, but also like engineering issues. So a great, great team and great projects. And then I worked with people at NYU and Cornell Tech in, in New York. Uh, and from there, essentially joined New York. Uh, so I'm a veteran now. And, uh, uh, you know, really like uh, the, the way York offers this uh, diversity of disciplines and a great place to scale our work and a great platform to grow from here. So I really enjoy it and I feel privileged to be here as well. So quite a long journey, lots of, you know, continents moves and all that, but uh, I think it, it led to the right place. So I'm really happy and uh, enjoying myself here in Canada now. Yeah, sounds exciting. Um... Being all those places, what do you think is the greatest benefit or your biggest takeaway from just being in so many places? I think, well, uh, I think just experiences, right? So you work with different, uh, so different worlds in a way, right? So all, although we spoke the same language, uh, computers, right? We, we are part of software engineering, computer science departments, but uh, they all those uh, Cambridge, UK or Princeton, they provide you opportunities to talk to some of the leading minds in your discipline. So this is something you can just dream about, right? And uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's it's how they get there. They, you get those experiences and understand how to your work ethics, how you have to approach things, how you have to focus. That's greatest takeaway. Uh, obviously, uh, you, along the way, uh, besides you know career path, you, you go to those wonderful places, beautiful places around the world, and you enjoy those and culturally and seeing different cultures and uh, how uh, societies operate and communities. Ultimately, especially with uh, my work, as probably we'll discuss later on, this actually helped enrich or enhance my work because it ties into those uh, understanding of the community and what a community needs. And my work in privacy is particularly tied to those. Uh, so this certainly helps me understand or maybe a better way of approaching things. So really, uh, like I said, really fortunate to have that option of actually going to those places and taking those opportunities, going through those opportunities and making sure that, uh, you know, I can incorporate them in my work. Yeah, it's awesome. So now that you're at York, what classes do you teach? Right, uh, I reached my destination. Uh, so at York, uh, as a faculty at computer science. I teach fundamental courses in computer science. So that's operating system, uh, digital uh, system design, but uh, also starting to teach uh, introduction to computer security. And I'm particularly excited about a um, course I'm going to start off uh, teaching about privacy and socio-technical systems, uh, or theory and applications. So it ties all of my research into the scores and uh, you know, trying to make sure that the work I'm doing is can communicate that and, and get students involved. But also with fundamental courses, uh, you realize it's important at the later stages. Now that I'm, uh, I'm working on privacy, I realize that operating systems and computer architectures, knowledge of those things is quite beneficial and helps you uh, along the way. So I'm really excited about those. And obviously, introduction to computer security is something that I'm very excited about. It was one of my favorite courses uh, at university. Uh, and uh, I think it kind of shaped in some way uh, my path, though I would hope that some of my teaching would essentially lead to something similar, but we tried to make it a great course, hands-on, giving students uh, a very good introduction to what computer security is all about and understanding that, you know, there's more to learn, but hopefully giving them the right tools. Uh, that's why it's called fundamentals. You give them the fundamentals to 
give the right tools so that they can actually uh, find the information they need and get it whenever they need it. Yeah, they sound pretty exciting. And yeah, I hope, uh, hope students sign up. I mean, some of the fundamentals, they kind of have to part of the degree, but uh, some of them, you know, if they're electives, yes, they should join. It'd be a lot of fun. So you talked about uh, the operating systems class. You know, I took that class this year. Okay. And actually, I had a similar... Like, I really like what you said before about like the fundamental classes because after I finished the operating systems class, yeah, I had a similar thought where you know learning how things work at the lower level, the fundamental level, yes, really helps you know create the big picture, help you understand right. the big picture. Right, right. That's 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 absolutely right. We learn about scheduling algorithms. So you know, typical round robin or some other algorithms, and at some point in a class. I stop there and I say, wait a second, let's think about this. We, as engineers building those systems, make a decision on scheduling. So scheduling can be different priorities. Those priorities can be up the level, so be hierarchical or you know some role-based scheduling. A decision on that level will alter everything in terms of how the system operates. So we as software engineers have a huge responsibility uh, about how we design those systems and what kind of schedule algorithm we choose. That decision will affect everything. So uh, operating system is a packed course with a lot of technical uh, things in it. And as you know, it, it's not easy. I mean, it's quite complex and it's quite a lot of material to, to kind of uh, jam into uh, a short semester. So, uh, but hopefully it provides the fundamentals uh, and that realization that uh, we have a huge responsibility as computer scientists, especially in, in today's world, to make those decisions, at least reflect on them, right? So maybe we don't have the expertise to make those decisions, not the ethical decision, what kind of schedule algorithms, but we should realize that it's not a default setting. It's not just like checkbox. It's something that we should find our way and I would hope a lot of the students will move on and be project managers and will actually lead teams of engineers. This is something that they should also communicate and say, yes, we certainly want to make our system efficient and you know, maybe this scheduling algorithm is the best to make sure that things are run smoothly, but it will actually uh, be biased towards a particular uh, situation. So let's think about it, what we actually want to do. And those kind of realization actually came to me later on in my career. I didn't have that a lot in, in the engineering curriculum, and I'm trying to change that as well through my uh, teaching, but as well as working on changing some of the topics we, we covered as part of the software engineering computer science curriculum. So that's very important. So in your personal experience, how has teaching classes changed since switching to remote learning? Oh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, I remember, so I remember the switch. So I wasn't at York, but I remember teaching an operating system course uh, in person. And then I got a day's notice saying you have to move remote. And everything moved remote, right? Everything was shut down. And now we're in this period where everything is moving to a digital platform. And interestingly enough, just before that, uh, we are doing some research on natural disasters where we are trying to analyze privacy implications of systems uh, that are used during natural disasters. So you have your flashlight, you have your GPS tracker, and how your expectations uh, change during those situations, right? So they're uh, emergency situations. So maybe you don't want to reveal your location in a normal situation, but when it's a natural disaster, it's a tornado, you will say, I don't really mind just save me, right? So here you want to broadcast that to everyone. So this was a very similar situation where we were in the emergency state and everything has to had to move rapidly online just to maintain the schedule and make sure that, you know, students graduate, that courses being taught and so forth. And uh, 
during that period, there's a lot of changes that might not be uh, well thought through, right? So there was really a rapid one. And it's okay, I guess, in, you have that excuse that it was an emergency, but it's important to reflect uh, on it now and see how we're moving forward, especially if we want to keep some of those systems. And uh, I feel using a lot of the digital system brings up uh, a lot of the issues that we we have seen before in other contexts, in other settings like consumer uh, tech, where they were collect a lot of information. And now you bring them into education and saying, okay, we're using Zoom for teaching, but Zoom wasn't designed for teaching in the classroom. It was designed for a, a business meeting. So that's a different set of expectations. And our work is uh, looking at those, but certainly things have yes, been conducting this conversation over, you know, uh, remotely, so that's really uh, makes things easier, more efficient. Certainly, we can do more. We can open up a lot of things. So conferences, for example, or other uh, events can be more inclusive because not everyone can travel, not everyone can be in a place, uh, accessibility. But uh, certainly, uh, uh, with that, uh, we have to be, we have to realize that we're bringing other challenges, other uh, other things in place. So, like as you were saying, it's like this idea of like. It's like a trade-off, right? Kind of trading off privacy for what our current needs are. It's kind of like when I give the weather at my location on my phone so that I can see whether or not it's going to rain. Right. So here's the, you know, uh, lecture one on, you know, privacy and social technical system that I'm going to actually talk about. This is actually a great example that you provide here uh, about, uh, you know, how do you define privacy, right? And you said trade-off. And I would argue there is no trade-off. This is a false trade-off in terms that we don't have to trade our privacy to get those things. If you define privacy as an appropriate flow of information, uh, and this is based on the theory uh, of contextual integrity by Helen Nissenbaum, which I work really closely to, and hopefully we'll talk about more about it. But the idea there is that you actually revealing your location to a weather app, that's an appropriate, or some might think it's an appropriate and legitimate information flow that the weather app actually needs your location and you understand that it needs it for a purpose of actually giving you the somewhat accurate weather forecast. What happens is when the weather app shares that information location, let's say with some third party to sell you uh, umbrellas, right? Now, again, not saying this is, you know, exactly like this is a violation of your privacy maybe you are okay with that if you are okay with that information flow going and you want to buy that umbrella i have no issue with that what i want is transparency and understanding what information flows are actually happening which ones are appropriate and which ones are inappropriate and and basically that's where the core of it so there is no trade-off in that sense in fact it, you know a lot of the systems come in and say hey you need to trade your privacy uh to do this, we, we need to get that information and you have to reveal all of it. But I'm saying, okay, wait a second. If you need some of the information, you tell me what information you need for what purpose uh, and we can talk rather than saying, give it all and we'll do our best to essentially uh, make sure that it doesn't go into the wrong hands. And, you know, there's a lot of things uh, in that nature that uh, essentially just marketing it as trade-off makes it quite difficult to build privacy preserving system because people feel like privacy is secrecy. I need to hide all my information. Well, no, you have to, there's supposed to be an appropriate flow of information. So you have to share information to, you know, get some services, but there are some information flows that you might not think are appropriate. Actually, there are a lot of them uh, right now, but you know, we have to discuss that later. 
So can you give us an example? Because I would say that I probably am not fully aware of like the appropriate and inappropriate flows of information where my information is going. And I don't really think the average everyday person is either. So do you think that people should be a lot more concerned about where their data is going? And if yes, then how can we be more informed? How can we be safer? Right. That's again, great question. So yes, uh, we as Consumers uh, and users of those digital services should be more aware of, you know, those try to mimic traditional services, physical services, but they're not, they're digital. So they bring a lot of uh, privacy threats. So you should be aware of it more, all of those, but the burden shouldn't be on us in a way. So a lot of the work we're doing is actually on policy. And at some point there was a lot of conversation a few years back on Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and all of those uh, scenarios where information suddenly ends up in hand and people are actually not expecting it to be there. And somebody said, and I really like that capture, it's not about control because a lot of the system will say, well, you should be aware of it and you should you know, go into the settings and change the controls and make sure that it actually, because that's what being aware is all about. Well, first of all, it's very tricky. Uh, you would go to any of those services and you see in the language and, you know, and it's changes, uh, the, the settings change every time. So it shouldn't be uh, strictly because it's difficult on the consumer, but uh, it, so it should not about control, it's about respect. So a lot of the services should respect privacy, uh, your privacy. And by respect, I mean, ensuring that they align with the expectations and norm of the setting of the social context they're actually uh, operating. So if Zoom or any other video teams or any other video conferencing tool is now operating within education, it should realize there are some values and norms that actually operate in that context, right? So for example, we might not want to track every single movement, eye movement of a student, or we don't want to show their uh, home to the audience as, as it was before, right? Before they introduced the, the backgrounds, right? So there are some things that they should be aware of rather than saying, well, actually complying. So if you go to any of those companies, they will say, we're complying with law, so we are fine. But they should realize they're operating in a social context that is operating on some expectations and there are some values in there and they should actually build technology around them. So it shouldn't be on the consumer to be concerned. A lot of it has to be to come from those services. Uh, our institutions as well, hopefully we'll talk about it more, and then uh, policymakers. So you can actually tell those companies when you're operating in medical uh, environments or educational setting, there are some things you cannot do or you should rely on with your, uh, your systems, your operations of your system with the, with the norms of, uh, of that particular context. Oh, that, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you gave that really long answer because it was really great gave me a lot of things to think about that i never really thought of before like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never can i never really considered you know that perspective because it's kind of like you said i always had the mindset where it's kind of like it's on me to like to protect where my data goes and make sure that the flow is appropriate but there's only so much that one exactly person. and it's yeah and this part of our work is actually look also looking at the term of service and privacy policies and if you even try to figure out what's actually happening and imagine doing it for every single app that you're using and actually not using for your own purpose, you're actually at school, right? So you're actually sitting at, and suddenly using Zoom. Well, read their privacy policy and try to realize what's actually happening. So it's not on you. You should be more, you as general us, we should be more aware of those things just to 
make sure maybe, you know, switch off our webcam at some point or, you know, make sure that when you talk the microphone off and so forth. But those the technology is so complex and especially you are not a typical user in a way because you are a computer scientist, right? So you are essentially more aware of some of the back behind the scenes of this. But general public, let's say, when they're using those technology there, they might not be as technically savvy and it's not on them to figure out what information, what a network packet, where it goes and what's happening. It's it's on those services, on the institutions, on the governance policies to essentially align themselves with the societal norms and values and expectations. Now, sometimes, as we we're discussing, you know, that weather app, sometimes that works, you know, that weather app, maybe it needs to make some money, right, to actually exist. So it will actually tell you, if it tells you, I need to make some money or to get some funds for our projects to give you accurate information flows that I actually generate. So I'm sending this information to this party and they're doing this this particular thing with it. So you basically explaining this rationale. You might align yourself. You say, well, okay, now I might be okay with that, but not revealing that or doing it in such a way that it's not completely clear or after the fact and all of that, that really uh, boils down to to me, what is a privacy violation? Because you feel this uh, feeling inside that something that you is not aligning with what you would expect should happen, right? So, okay, I'm giving the location to the weather app, that's fine, but uh, maybe I, I don't want to give it to the umbrella you know, service. Yeah, transparency, right? Yeah, transparency in that sense yeah. of information flows. Okay, so on a similar topic, I would love to hear more about your work in the Privacy Rhythm Research Lab. So what would you say is like the big topic or the big question that you're trying to explore? Right. So as you know, following up this, this conversation, essentially it boils down to uh, building. I'm a computer scientist or software engineering is my passion. So I would like to build systems, privacy preserving systems that align themselves with societal norms uh, and expectations. All of the work that I'm doing right now is kind of reduces to, to that point. There's a lot of things that need to happen. First, we need to understand what are those expectations. So there are a lot of new settings, so smart homes, that's not your typical home or new environments, virtual environments, for example, or augmented reality environments, all of those environments where you might not have established expectations. So, Part of the work is understanding, so it's more social information science kind of work, you know, talking to people, gauging their understanding of the system, understanding what they would expect, and then from a technical perspective, translating that into formal logics into a system. Imagine your email client understands that you are sending an email within an educational context, so some things shouldn't be revealed and by law or by policy or something that you I don't want to read. It's not just seeing someone, just information inside. So uh, let's say a professor shouldn't reveal student grades to to third party. And it's important that the systems that will align themselves with those uh, expectations and rules and ultimately, hopefully they become all norms and so forth. So uh, that's kind of where the focus is. And so there's two main directions in the lab. One is to understand uh, the contextual uh, norms and one the other part uh, the software engineering part is actually building a system around them so how do you actually translate them that's not a trivial problem because uh, 
or even us, we're talking about them. How do you translate it into one one in zero, right? Ultimately, it boils down to one in zero for now, before the quantum computer comes along. But right now, it's ones and zero, so you have binary states. So you have to, you know, certainly can do complex logics with it and embed some of the privacy rules into your system, so they will essentially operate aligning with those expectations. So I imagine that those expectations, they change greatly, you know, depending on the context, depending on the culture, depending on the situation. So Correct. how would you go about not only finding those out, but implementing them in the appropriate way? Right. Excellent question. Uh, if you're interested in the graduate position in the lab, it's open because you're asking really good questions and it's still an open question in a way. That's part of the work. So we developed two methods and methodologies of crowdsourcing expectations. So we had a survey methodology based on contextual integrity and uh, governance theory, governance knowledge, commons theory. And that allows us to ask the questions in a particular way and essentially understand what a majority of uh, the respondents feel like, what is the appropriate flow. Once you have that, you essentially translate that into a structure that a computer can enforce. So essentially a, a rule. And there are quite a lot of rule-based systems out there that we can incorporate. And in fact, we build one as well that essentially allow you to fit in those rules based on those expectations. And when the system generates an information flow, uh, those rules will come basically try to govern those so maybe block one saying, hey, or just notify you, hey, things are uh, not appropriate or you should reconsider. That thing, part of your question, which was great in terms of, you know, they can change. So a lot of the things we are, you know, educational settings, a lot of the traditional settings, contexts as we call them, social contexts, they have established norms and those come from different sources. Uh, all, all over time, they you know come from societal like understanding of the world, uh, rules. Even you know your parents, your your community sometimes uh, essentially provides you with this initial understanding how things should be, and that kind of feeds into your understanding how the system should operate. So certainly, uh, when we are looking at different methodologies, we would like to be sensitive to that. And the idea there would be, if a particular flow deviates from what is uh, the system thinks uh, you essentially the expectation you'll be notified in some way that's more on the design side notifying some way just asking you would you be okay with that and basically trying to gauge that as often as possible now i would like to say you know we have it covered don't worry we have the system in place but that's part of a research question because if you prompt those questions too often then it's kind of like becomes a different types of those burdensome privacy policies. I don't want to answer all of those questions, right? There's so many of them. Just get it. Uh, so uh, we're trying to find, uh, you know, we're using statistical methods to understand how we can fear those, but we have to be very careful because there's this line we basically between the personal expectation and societal expectations. Society thinks is okay, you might think is not okay, right? So how do you build a system that kind of uh, is sensitive to that as well? I think we're on the right track. We have the frameworks in place the complexity in terms of computational complexity of doing that is doable and feasible. It's more providing, uh, I think it relies on the design question. How do you do it in such a way that it's not burdensome, it's not interfering with your flow of work? And yeah, but it's still, you know, would love to recruit students to help with that, with those questions, exactly those questions. So hopefully some of your listeners uh, will reach out. Yeah. Um, and I also imagine, you know, what's okay now 
like in a couple years might not be okay? Man, you are asking the right questions. Yes, exactly. So uh, one example would be, uh, and this is part of what we're doing right now in terms of how future education or education platforms would change the current expectations and norms around those systems, right? So maybe beforehand, when you were attending a class, your expectation was that the professor kind of take your attendance maybe, you know, or noted you in class. Now that you are part of a, uh, let's say, professor using Zoom system, they can actually automatically track whether you're in class, whether your webcam is open. And imagine if there's another system in the lecture hall that actually tracks where you're sitting, whether you're paying attention, all of those things were not part of, not saying that's happening, I'm pretty sure it's not, but I'm saying it's possible, you know, if you, if you push that to that degree for the sake of efficiency, like, okay, we'll track if they fall asleep, you see, basically that will be beneficial to the professor because they will know if their lecture is interesting. So uh, yeah, yay to that, like, why, why not? And then the student will, will give the feedback that, you know, they, they should have paid attention to that particular lecture. So all good, but really you'll be harvesting a lot of information that you weren't previously doing. And the question is, uh, how do we essentially make sure that we keep the system in place, but they should have the properness of information flows and also align with the values of the context, in this case, education. So we want to provide education, but we also would like to make sure that your privacy is not violated and so forth. So you're right that there is a risk here. And... In fact, the theory that I'm using, theory of contextual integrity, the author, Helen Isimo, kind of warned in her book, Privacy and Context, about it. It's, it's basically uh, tyranny of the normal. So at some point, things become normal that you cannot actually challenge them. It's, it becomes normal that you go outside and there is a camera watching you, a CCTV watching you. It becomes normal that you walk inside a shopping mall and you have a camera tracking your location in the aisle and what you choose and pick, right? And then it becomes so normal, so it becomes a norm, right? And then you cannot actually, you ask, using our methodology, you go around and say, is it okay? And they're like, I guess it's okay because I'm used to it. So it's important for us as engineers working with policymakers and regulators to make sure that, that, that we keep that a check, right? We're essentially making sure that technology we introduce are vetted to understand that they, they have to align themselves with what we believe are the norms and uh, certainly there's always a push of new technology of disruption, right? So that's how new things happen. But there's quite a bit of work, uh, uh, some of my colleagues that say that keeping privacy in place doesn't hinder the progress that those new technology bring. Uh, they, they make the technology more ethical, uh, more user-friendly, and also ultimately beneficial. So yeah, I think there's quite a bit of challenges there and you spot on. Uh, we have to keep an eye on, on the things that change and make sure that ultimately sometimes we align ourselves, uh, our systems and our expectations with the new technology, right? So maybe a toaster should tweet something, but not my toaster, but maybe, you know, maybe that's the new thing, but we should be aware of those privacy and ethical issues that essentially associate with those uh, new disruptions. And as engineers, be mindful when we're designing those systems. Yeah, so I guess the big theme, like tying it all together is, you know, transparency and awareness. It's, it's transparency. It's, it's more complicated than this, obviously. But for me, if I would kind of have one catchphrase here, it's about appropriate information flow. That's basically what it comes to. And then obviously, in order to make sure that it's appropriate, you should be aware 
of the norms. So it's appropriate only if it aligns with the norm of particular expectation as well. So transparency is a mechanism to make maybe get there, right? So there's a lot of things in play in here and we have a, a role to play. So as, as computer scientists and engineers, but it's, it's a multidisciplinary project. And uh, certainly I was telling you about my work and focusing on that, but it ties to so much prior work. It actually surprised me because I worked on privacy before joining this privacy and information projects that I'm working right now. And it was quite limited. I was thinking, okay, it's about encryption. It's about secrecy. But I realized it's actually much bigger than this. And it has to, we have to change our, how we communicate it as well. So communication is important. There's a lot of things in, uh, in there. So I don't want to simplify it too much to say that we just, because then it's, we're like, okay, you want transparency? No problem. Just read five pages of what we are doing. And then it's transparency. It's actually making sure, respecting privacy, ensuring that the system we build uh, generate appropriate information for us. All right. So. Before we close off here, I want to shift topics just a little bit. I want to talk about something that's very important to all of us here, and that's uh, EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Right. So how important is EDI to your research and just to the advancement of science and tech in general? Uh, great. Yeah, great question. And uh, certainly uh, EDI is, is big in York, and uh, rightly so. I think uh, York is leading the way in, in many respects and uh, the conversations we're having uh, with faculty and when we're talking about new projects and current projects and the teams and compositions and so forth, that's certainly at the front. When it comes to my research, it happens to be at the core of it. We, we had this conversation about privacy expectations and this is very much depending on a lot of factors, including, you know, uh, understanding cultural expectations and societal expectations, understanding uh, how things are perceived from different angles. So uh, building a team around those projects, you basically be detrimental for the whole direction of this work to not to think about EDI. And I'm thinking that other projects should obviously be aware of that as well, but for this particular work for myself, this was a huge help uh, working in diverse teams and essentially understanding the issues and the challenges that essentially involved in working on the project themselves as well as working on the direction of the research. So uh, I certainly think it's it's core and also from my own perspective, I feel like being through all those places in different parts of the world and understanding the challenges that are involved in essentially uh, getting to places and, and being part of the places when you feel like you essentially don't belong, right? You essentially feel like, I, I, this is not my place. Everyone around me is not like me. And it feels like, okay. And uh, if I felt privileged to be welcomed, I feel privileged to, to be helped when I had challenges. So I'm now in a position where I can return that and build a team around myself and make sure I provide the guidance and the support that I need. And uh, this is Certainly not just core to my research, it's core to how I work. And I actually was thinking quite a bit about it. At some point, a long time ago, wrote a, a blog post about diversity in engineering. And uh, I remember thinking about it quite a bit in terms of how we build systems. We don't think about it. It's kind of part of our cultures to have multiple systems working together that essentially don't belong together, right? They come from different places. 
But when we come together, that's where your system is the most robust one. And I feel like uh, as a community, and like I said, York is leading the way, and I'm actually learning a lot, especially coming to Canada and realizing uh, the, the history of the place. So I'm trying to essentially educate myself as well. And uh, yeah, certainly maybe a longer answer, but I think this is a very important question. All right, that's a, that's a great answer. So that's all the questions I have for you today. So thank you, Dr. Schwarzenegger. This has been a very informative discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I, I hope, you know, students will uh, reach out and I'm happy to talk more if there are follow-up questions. That was Dr. Jan Schwarzenegger. His research is so interesting because it applies to everybody who is online. He certainly gave me quite a bit to think about and consider in my everyday life. I hope that, like me, you now have a better understanding of what online privacy entails. Remember, he's still building a team. So if you're interested, it's a great opportunity. Learn more by visiting yorku.ca slash privacy. We'll see you next time on This is Lasan. <laughs>